Well, good evening, everybody. One of the advantages of not actually being a guest is that I can ask more of you. So I can say, good evening, everybody. Thank you, and welcome to all the guests that are, that are here tonight. We're having Guest Sunday, and so you can treat me like a guest, but actually I work here. And I understand <laughs> that we're on um, being streamed tonight, so welcome to you too if you're watching online. So the three of us that are guests here today are asked to speak on why God now. Why God now? So there's two ways that we can, I can interpret the question. I thought I can, I can answer the question and say, why now, after nearly 45 years, do I still believe in God? And not just any God, but the God and Father of, Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I really am a passionate follower of Jesus. And the other way to ask the question is why, in this day and age, with the apparent failure of the God Project in so many people's eyes and the many, many ways that Christians and the church and its members have failed, why would I suggest God to anyone? So I'm going to, I'm going to do it both the, answer both those questions and I'm going to start with me. I'm going to start with me. When I was a teenager, I wanted to be a nurse. So I went to a camp for people that wanted to be nurses, and it was run by Christians. Now, the Christian bit didn't really interest me all that much, but these people were completely into it. I mean, they were totally into it. Um, they weren't like the religious people that I knew. They were much more passionate and much more engaged. Kind, loving, passionate, uh, but I have to say a little strange. To me, a little strange. So fast forward a few years, and I did, in fact, end up nursing. And I met more of these passionate Christians as though nursing attracts them. I'm sure it used to, it used to attract them. So this, but this stage, the path that I'd carved myself was definitely not Christian, very much not Christian, because Christianity seemed to be about rules and regulations and it seriously got in the way of what I wanted to do. Someone actually suggested recently that I was an apathetic agnostic, but I was not apathetic. I was a thinker, I was a reader, I was a searcher. It was just by this stage, I found just about everybody and everything either unrewarding or disappointing. And none of the alternative faith traditions that I'd looked at and none of the philosophical positions I had explored were any different. Everything was unrewarding and disappointing. Nothing seemed to account for what I saw was the absolute pointlessness of life or the hopelessness that I experienced within myself. I didn't feel that life out there was all that challenging. I just felt that life was like pointless. And eventually that pointlessness, that hopelessness actually caught up with me. And as I considered what to do about it, experienced the hopelessness and the disappointment, I realised I'd never really explored Christianity as a relationship with Jesus. And that was a thing that these passionate kind of strange Christians used to talk about, as opposed to the religion that I was used to considering. And so I thought I'd give Jesus a go. Now, I'll be honest with you, it was so transactional. It was like, okay, good, I'll enter into a relationship with you and in exchange, 
you can fix up a few things and give me some sort of like meaning here. The day I made this deal with God started and ended like many other of my fairly depressing days. No shining light in the sky, no angels singing in heaven, no sudden rainbows or no emotional upheaval, just okay, I'll give it a go. And I thought my contribution was I would read the Bible and go to church. So I started going to church and I bought a Bible and I started reading it. So the weeks passed. Now, I didn't think of myself as a particularly good person, but I did not think that I was a bad person. I decided most things based on the consequences. Would they be good for me or not good for me? There wasn't really a moral thing happening there. It was just, was that going to work out for me? And it was like a risk analysis. You know when you do a risk assessment and you think, how likely is this to happen? And how bad or good will it be if it did? That's how I made my decisions. Now, the Christians, they told me I was a sinner, but I just didn't see it. I did not see it. By my standards, I wasn't doing a bad job, especially on the whole church thing and Bible thing. I was doing really well, certainly reading it a lot. And because I was reading it so much, a day came when it suddenly became clear to me that the biggest problem I had was not on the outside, it wasn't even the things that I did right or the things that I did wrong. It was something on the inside of me. I don't exec exactly remember what I read. I know it was in Ephesians. Sometimes I go back there and I think, what was it that spoke to you that day? And I, I just can't remember. But all I know is that I suddenly saw it so clearly. It was sin. And it was like, oh, my goodness. Not sin narrowly conceived as a whole lot of moral failings or a whole lot of little things that I was doing wrong, though there were plenty of those I, I came to see. No, sin as rebellion. Sin as a rejection of the loving creator of the world. Sin against the God that we just sang about in that psalm that Jamie read for us. Sin against that. The loving creator of the world... I'd broken relationship with him by rejecting him. But, I also read, sin that he could mend. I felt such a relief. I wasn't only aware of my own sin, my own sin problem, but that that sin problem actually had a solution. And I was deeply sorry, deeply sorry that I hadn't recognised it up until now. I started to see things differently, understand things differently. I started to experience the presence and the love of God and I realised that what he'd accomplished on the cross and the amazing truth of his rising from the dead could impact everything. But there were challenges ahead, two sorts of challenges. The first sort were personal of course there were personal challenges because I was in fact still me and I had had the sin problem for a good while and so there was quite a few personal things to clean up. But the other challenges were more challenges to faith itself and what I was believing and that's what I'm going to focus on. Not the personal challenges, the challenges to faith. Now I did end up working as a nurse for a long time and I was a nurse at North Shore my new relationship with Jesus gave me purpose and meaning. But what about the people I cared for with all sorts of appalling stories and experiences? I prayed for them and nothing happened. People didn't get better. People died. 
Children died. I saw precious little babies born dead. Sometimes I was the one that told a mother that I couldn't find her baby's heartbeat. Where was God then? Did the Jesus I knew have anything to offer these suffering people? Most of them didn't think so. Goodness, when I was standing there, I didn't think so either. What could I, what, what could I possibly bring, or indeed God, into this suffering and into this pain? And I still remember the images of the Ethiopian famine, of the disaster that was the Vietnam War, of pictures pouring out of the terrorism in Northern Ireland, and I was thinking, where was God? Why didn't he do something? What about poverty? And where was God for Christians who were persecuted just for being Christian? Was being a Christian just about me getting to heaven? Like, this is great, I'm going to heaven, sod the rest of the world. What about everyone else? Did this faith have anything to offer the rest of the world? In 1980, I moved to Taree, and until this point, I'd never met an Indigenous person. But on the outskirts of Taree, there was a little township called Perfleet. The living conditions in Perfleet were appalling. Indigenous people, adults and children, were completely overrepresented on the words that I worked in. There were way too many of them for the number of, of number of them there was. So I joined a group of Christian doctors and we did a study called First Be Reconciled. The idea was first be reconciled to your Indigenous brothers and sisters. All that happened for me was I learnt things I'd never heard about the appalling treatment of First Nations people since colonisation. It was distressing and it was confronting. How could Christians have allowed it? Done it themselves. Why hadn't I heard a word of this throughout my schooling? Why didn't I know any of this? Where had God been while they suffered? Then I went to Macquarie University and I was exposed to many of the post-Enlightenment and post-modernist philosophical thinkers. Actually, I absolutely loved it. I loved the reading. I loved the research. Their observations were often so accurate. I could see so much truth in their critique of religion and of Christianity in particular. Perhaps most modern thinking, I thought, had more to offer Christianity than I'd been told. Perhaps the church was totally outdated and things need to be revised, especially ideas around power and women and gender and race. I stood up as a Christian in tutorials, but my arguments rarely, if ever, hit the spot. I, I hardly convinced myself, sat there thinking, oh my goodness, this just sounds so shallow. It certainly didn't convince anybody else. And so on and so on and so on in those early years, full of situations that didn't change just because I had become a Christian. I was deeply challenged and I was deeply questioning. So why did I persevere? Why am I God here now still for me? Because I began to realise that my first understanding of what it was to be a Christian was narrow. It centred on trusting Jesus, being morally upright and going to heaven. It was about me. All good things, those things, but not the only things. As I increasingly faced the reality of a world that was just packed full of suffering and pain, as I increasingly faced that reality, 
I realised it was bigger. Creation was falling apart at the seams. The story I was in had to be bigger. And I came to see as I read the Bible that it presented a story that begins and ends not with me, but with God. He created. And the end will be him. And in the middle, not me, again, in the middle, Jesus. That a creation currently groaning and suffering under the weight of sin, of the failure to honour God as creator, and right at the centre of that story, Jesus, that's the solution to the groaning and the suffering. This Jesus Christ has overcome the sin problem, risen from the dead, and both my sin is dealt with and the sin of the world and that he's coming back to finish the story and that this groaning, suffering creation will be perfected and be as it was meant to be. So as I cared for the sick and suffering and the dying, I knew there'd be a time after Jesus returned when there'd be no more pain. Every tear would be wiped away. Even as I delivered whatever physical care and comfort that I could, I would pray knowing that Jesus was at hand and calling them just as he'd called me. And some would hear his call. And I learned that he's a God of justice. All the goodwill in the world will not deliver true justice in this life to the billions of people who suffer unjustly because human justice systems cannot cope with the sin problem. I had a sin problem that only Jesus could solve. You have the same sin problem. So does the world. They just don't like calling it sin. They just don't like the word sin. And the hope that I have in Jesus is that he can deal with the sin problem and he will deliver justice. He promises to avenge the innocent and that each person, each person, will give an account of themselves to God. So while I can do my best for justice and I shouldn't stop striving and seeking after justice, my reach is limited, but his isn't. Some of you would have heard of Neville Naden and heard him speak here recently. And He's an Indigenous Christian brother and he talked about reconciliation and he said that the only true reconciliation is in Jesus Christ. He's the peacemaker. That's what I started to see when I was living in Taree. There's no hope here just for us all getting on together. So much pain, so many conflicting interests, so much history, so much injustice, which doesn't mean that I give up. It doesn't mean that we all stop working towards those things, but it does mean that when I feel hopeless or beaten, I can put my hope in Jesus. That's the only place that true reconciliation can happen. So that's why I'm still God now. Because there is a hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus for my sin problem and for the sin problem of the world. And it's available in no other system, belief system or philosophy. Even those that appear to offer some solutions have not actually the power to deliver. At a certain point, they run out of power. But Jesus? Jesus has overcome sin, he's risen from the dead, he has the power to deliver on his promises. And while I wait for that day, when he will finally deliver on all those promises, 
I get to be his hands and feet here. I get to be someone that can rejoice in what he's done for me, but also for the world. And I can be someone that, by the power of his spirit, pulls some of that hope and some of that joy into the present so that it flows through me to the people around me. So that's my why, why I'm still here after nearly 45 years. But why should it be anybody else's why? Because surely faith's personal, just between me and God. About 25 years ago, I was teaching religious education in a primary school and an older teacher approached me and asked to speak to me because she knew I was a Christian because I taught scripture and she'd hoped I would have some of the same ethical and moral beliefs that she had, that we would agree morally and ethically about things because she had an adult daughter that wasn't making the choices that she should, thought she should make morally and ethically. So when we met together, my first question uh, for her was this, why? Why do you think that the choices your daughter is making are wrong. She didn't understand the question at first. Everyone knew these things were wrong, like everybody knew this was, these things were wrong. Okay, if everybody knows it, where did everybody, everyone, get the idea that they were wrong? What makes them wrong? We discussed the consequences of some of the choices that her daughter was making and some of the consequences were not terribly good. Some of them were dangerous. Some of them were maybe stupid and unwise, but morally wrong. Well, based on what standard? It's not the consequences of something that we do themselves that makes something wrong. She had no foundation for her own belief. No foundation at all for her own belief system. And no story that she felt part of that she could explain to anybody else. And neither did her daughter. She thought these things were wrong. Her daughter didn't. Who's right? And in many ways, that's a situation cultures in the Western tradition are facing now. We're living in a culture where values, moral, morality, ethics have been separated from the story that gave them birth. Things like equality, forgiveness, humility, the belief that all people are of equal value, these are Judeo-Christian values and beliefs. The opening words of the American Declaration of Independence declare, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. But equality is not self-evident across times and cultures. You have to take the creator that they mention into account because the values are endowed by the creator. A creator who says in Genesis, who it says in Genesis, created humans in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And so Christians are created in the image of God. Human beings are created in the image of God. And so Christians down the centuries began to shape the culture around them by building the biblical principles such as compassion, justice, respect for human dignity into the institutions around them. Christian principles inform the foundations of the legal and political systems in most Western countries. The rule of law, equality, 
and protection of individual rights have their roots in biblical teachings. The abolition of the slave trade was a Christian project. Education for all, healthcare for all, these have their roots in the Christian belief in the dignity of all human beings created in the image of God, whether they be rich or poor, male or female, black or white. The early Christian scientists developed the scientific method to examine a creation that they believe God had ordered in a certain way. And they set out to discover what that way was. And whenever Christians do it the Jesus way, full of grace and truth and mercy and love and compassion and forgiveness, it's wonderful. But we haven't, and we still don't always do it the Jesus way. Christians have used the Bible to support unimaginable, cruel and dehumanising practices. Women have been oppressed and marginalised and mistreated. The church's message to those with same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria has often been one of hate and judgement. And sexual abuse has not only been tolerated by individuals, which is bad enough, but by whole institutions. So why would I say we need God now? Because Jesus is just as appalled at what's been done in his name. Jesus' judgment on those who abuse their power is unremitting and it will come. God is on the side of the poor and the powerless and he's still the only answer to the sin problem that underlies such a catastrophic failure on our part. And the culture we're living in now is floating in a sea of Christian values without an anchor and with no answer to the sin problem. It's like the lady who wanted to talk to me about her daughter, about the moral choices that she was making. No anchor for her beliefs at all. No authority to call on. No story to be part of. Where do we anchor our desire for equality? Who arbitrates when there are complete competing beliefs or limited resources? What human system can negotiate when voices appeal to the same value for opposing outcomes? When that value is no longer anchored and the sin problem is raging? Our culture desperately needs an anchor for the storm. A loving saviour who's dealt with sin once and for all on the cross and whose loving arms are open for absolutely everyone. He is the hope of the world. Sin and death are at work in the world around us, but because he has risen from the dead, death has no sting, death has no victory, and we have both a present hope and a future hope. He's coming back. Some of you may have heard the illustration of people soaring off the branch of a tree while they're sitting on the branch. And in some ways, that's what's happening to us. In, the, in Western cultures, it's like people sitting on the branch of a tree, soaring away, getting a disconnect from the source of all their values, and we hear it cracking. We hear the branch cracking, and eventually the branch will fall. And who knows what will happen then? Well, God does. 
That's where we are now, soaring away at the very foundations of all the ethical beliefs we hold so dear and hearing the branches start to crack. Fairly depressing so far. So what can we do about it? Well, it is all about Jesus. You see, the Jesus that I met all those years ago, he gives me great hope. He gives me great joy. You can have that hope. You can have that joy. Some of you do. Some of you are only a bit flat right now because you'd forgotten that that's what's happening out there. So what can we do about it? So I've got some resources that I've brought with me. I'm going to draw on this one to speak to three groups of people. So in this book, and the other thing I've got is some QR codes for these two books. One of the books is Secular Creed, and Rebecca McLaughlin wrote it, and she's speaking at the next service, and that's a book I recommend that follows up on all of this. And the other one's The Air We Breathe, and he's an Australian, and that's on here as well. And the other... uh, Resources, the Gospels. Anyone that wants a Gospel at the end that's never read it, you have that opportunity. But I'm going to draw now on where to next from Glenn Scrivener's three groups of people. And the first group of the people that I'm going to address are the nuns. People who don't and have never believed in Jesus, never had a relationship with Jesus, why not consider him? Saying yes to a relationship with Jesus isn't about religions and rules. It's about a relationship. There was nothing dramatic about me considering Jesus all those years ago. I said yes to his offer. I started reading the Bible. Why don't you try saying yes to him? I started going to church. Come here. I didn't say a special prayer that day. I just opened my mind to the possibility of his being able to help and he met me there. Then he kept meeting me, and I know he'll meet anyone that asks. So come and get one of these Gospels, Mark or Luke. Come and ask me for one. The next group are the duns. You've been there and you've done that. You've tried Christianity. You might be sitting here and thinking, this is it. If it's not tonight, well, I'm, I'm, I'm out. Perhaps you've been deeply involved over a long period of time, but you think there are too many terrible things that you can't defend anymore, and you're right. Your critique most likely comes from your Christian understanding of justice and love and compassion and dignity. Well, you have a friend in Jesus. He feels exactly the same. If you reject everything else, don't reject Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross. Let him comfort and encourage you and walk beside you and come back. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will sustain you. And to the one, I'm assuming that's most of you here, to those of you who, like me, are deeply passionate about Jesus Christ and deeply engaged with him, be salt and light. Find your identity in Jesus and Jesus alone. Live the truth. Don't be ashamed to speak. Speak about it. Don't try and defend what can't be defended. There's no defence for some of our failures. And that's okay because it's about Jesus. And that's who you're talking about. The possibility, the hope that's in Jesus where there's no hope. Acknowledge the failures. Your own failures, bring them to Jesus constantly. And the failures of people around you, okay. 
and flow always and only in the deep, deep love of Jesus. In his compassion, in what he's done for you, and for all the people that you meet, flow in that love of Jesus. So why God now? Because there is a future and a hope. It sounds terrible, but it isn't terrible because he has broken the power of sin and death. There is a hope in the future that we can bring into the present. I know it for myself and I know it for you. And I know it for the world. His death and resurrection are the key to the sin problem. Only he can be the anchor that holds us and only he can bring the hope of that future into the present. And so look to Jesus, whether you are a nun, a done, or a one. Open your mind to Jesus. I'm going to pray for us now in the words of a prayer from Ephesians. And then Suzanne's going to come and talk about Alpha. I ask that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he rose Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Amen.